Thank you, praise team, for leading us in our singing. And church, thank you for your generous response with all these groceries. Uh, there will be a lot of families and local ministries who will be blessed because of what you are giving, what our church is providing. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 17, if you will. I want you to consider while you're turning in the last time that you were in a high-stress situation. What was going on in your life? In the midst of that high stress situation, what was going on? What caused the stress? And maybe more importantly, how did you respond to the stress? What, what did you do? What was your reaction? Researchers have noted several different types of responses to high stress reactions. Two of these I know you're familiar with because we always talk about it, right? The, the fight or the flight. Some people, they respond to high-stress situations with they're ready to fight, they're ready to go, they're ready to, uh, to, to move forward and to be aggressive and to defend themselves. Some have the flight response, right? This person wants to run. This person wants to avoid the stressor. Whatever it is that's coming their way, they, they want to move away from it. Uh, researchers also have a few others. Maybe you've heard of these, maybe you haven't, but the freeze response this person becomes paralyzed or overwhelmed or hypervigilant in the midst of high-stress situations. Then you have the fawn response. This person goes about trying to please other people. You know, they just want to be a people pleaser. They want to avoid conflict as much as they can and wherever they can. And then the last one, uh, I'm going to call the facade response. This person at least externally, acts like nothing is wrong. They just live in denial. Like there's no big deal. There's stress coming their way. There's a lot going on, but they just, they put on a front, the facade response. And I would bet that in this room, those various responses have been employed by various people, right? Like some of you want to fight. Some of you want to run. Some of you want to act like nothing's wrong. Some of you just want to avoid conflict at all costs. And some people become hypervigilant or overwhelmed or incredibly anxious at the proposition of high stress. What's the appropriate response? What's right? What's wrong? Well, every situation is different. We understand that. So we can't get too specific in answering that, but we can say this, that in times of high stress, the right response is always to seek and to trust the Lord. In times of high stress, the right response is always to seek and to trust the Lord and to follow him as best we know how to follow him. So over the past several weeks, we've seen this coup attempt, right? Absalom has been uh, playing the part of, of gathering his people together, trying to get support and duping the people of Israel and following him. And, and then now he's been proclaimed king in Hebron and now he's coming back to Jerusalem and we've seen David on his way out of Jerusalem. He's hightailing it out to avoid conflict, to avoid disaster that is going to be there. But we've also seen that God was at work behind the scenes. We saw many friends come and, and meet with uh, meet with David on his way out of Jerusalem, but then we saw some enemies come and meet with David on his way out of Jerusalem as well. But you recall that the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, and then as well as Hushai, a friend and an advisor of uh, David, he asked to stay back. And we saw last week that 
the king Absalom, the, the proclaimed king Absalom, wanted to get the advice from his main counselor, Ahithrophel, what should he do? And he gave his, his wisdom. He told him what David should do in the moment. And then he looked to Hushai, David's friend, who was playing the part of being a loyal servant of Absalom. And he gave him completely opposite instruction. And we learn that the king, Absalom, the proclaimed king, decides that he will now listen to Hushai in the moment. Today, we're going to look at chapter 17, verse 24, through chapter 19, verse 8, and we're going to see the much-anticipated battle and the fate of Absalom. What's going to happen? How are people going to respond in these high-stress situations? Now, we're going to see, we're going to spend time seeing the responses of the people involved here. But really what I want to focus on is our responses to stressful situations when the battle is raging in our own lives, when the spiritual battle is raging in our own lives. And I want us to see that living with a wartime mentality means that we walk by faith as we see Jesus, until we see Jesus face to face. So if you will, please stand. We'll begin by reading chapter 17, verse 24, through chapter 18, verse 8. 17, 24, through 18, verse 8, to begin. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amelio, from Lodeber, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over all the face of the country. 
And the forest devoured more people than the sword that day. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we give our attention now to your word, we pray that we would look to you, that we would trust you, and that as we're looking to you, that your spirit would speak to us, that you, by your grace, would move in this room and move in our lives and help us to follow you and to trust you. And as we look to what we'll see today, we pray that we would learn when the battle rages, how to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we left off in chapter 17, Ahithrophel was hanging himself because David had rejected his counsel, rejected his wisdom. And then in verses 24 through 26, the author gives us some details that pertain to both David and his army and to Absalom and his army. So David is now at Mahanaim, which you may recall was the place where Ishbosheth was pronounced king. David was now on the east side of the Jordan River. He was north of the Dead Sea, maybe about halfway up, halfway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the river. Absalom, we're told, set a man named Amasa over his army. He was going to be the commander of the army. And it turns out that this man was a relative of Joab. And as you know, Joab was the commander of David's army. Verse 27 tells us that Israel and Absalom encamped east of the Jordan in the land of Gilead. Now, the land of Gilead was vast. We don't know exactly where they were encamped. But what this does tell us is that most of the people had bought into the hype of Absalom being the new king. Israel and Absalom were camped there. And don't forget this. Loyalty to Absalom meant a rejection of David, a rejection of the Lord's anointed. In verses 27 through 29, we read of three individuals who, at great risk to themselves, were committed to supporting God's anointed. So the first thing that we see this morning is that by faith, we are to stand for God's anointed. By faith, we are to stand for God's anointed. The three individuals listed in many ways are unexpected supporters. We wouldn't expect these men to be there and to be supporting them, but they bring helpful resources. They bring valuable resources to David and to his men. The first person named here is Shobi. Now, Shobi was an Ammonite, right? The Ammonites were a pagan people. They did not follow the one true and living God. They did not worship the one true and living God. In fact, they warred against King David. Shobi is also the brother of one Hunan, the king who David tried to show kindness to back in chapter 10. And you may recall there that Hunan's advisors basically said, David's not doing this out of kindness and loyalty or steadfast love. He's doing this because he wants to trick you. So they captured some men of, of, of Judah and they shaved their beards and they made a mockery of them and then ultimately they did go to war. And you also remember that in chapter 12, David's army fights against the Ammonites and takes the Ammonite capital or the Ammonite royal city of Rabbah, which we're told here is Shobi's hometown. Now think about this. This man, Shobi, the brother of this king, and the one whose town had been taken over by David and his army, is now showing loyalty to God's anointed. And we don't know what caused this, 
We'll never know, but here we see that he is standing for God's anointed. Second is a man named Mekur, who was a servant of the household of Saul. This is the man who in chapter 9 is named as the one who took in Mephibosheth after, uh, after he was crippled. Perhaps David's steadfast love to Jonathan and caring for Mephibosheth persuaded Mekur to give his loyalty to David. But it wasn't an expected thing. The third is a man named Barzillai. This is the first time his name is mentioned, but later on in chapter 19, we're going to learn that he was a wealthy man, but he was nearly 80 years old. Now, I say that these three men helped David at great risk to themselves because they didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, there was going to be a battle. There was going to be a war. And if Absalom got the better of David and David's men, then these three men had just committed a treasonous act against the king. So this was, a, this was a risk for them, but they were showing loyalty. They were standing with God's anointed. By faith, they supported David. By faith, they stood with God's anointed. Now listen, as we go through life, we have opportunity every day to stand with Jesus. Every day we have opportunity to stand with Jesus. In the way that we live, in the choices that we make, in the things that we invest our resources in, in the conversations that we have, in the things that we abstain from, we are taking a stand. And while we don't know, let me, let me rephrase that. While we do know ultimately that Jesus won the victory, we don't ultimately know what's going to happen right now or what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen because of our loyalty to Jesus. Will our choices to live for Jesus make us enemies of the world? Yes, very likely. Will we suffer persecution or ridicule or ostracization because we are standing with God's anointed? Yes. In fact, I just read, I think yesterday or the day before, of a man, a preacher in Arizona who was shot in the head because he was, he was talking about Jesus on the streets. Will we at times have to sacrifice the things of the world because we understand the priority of heavenly treasures? Yes. And we're called to carry our crosses daily. We're called to stand for God's anointed. And this means faith. This means that we believe that God is good and we believe that he is powerful and we believe that he is worthy and we are loyal to King Jesus. But secondly, when the battle rages by faith, give no quarter to what opposes God's kingdom. By faith, give no quarter to what opposes God's kingdom. Now, when I say quarter, I don't mean give money. I mean give mercy or show mercy to. Uh, Banistry Tarleton was a British army officer in the Revolutionary War, and he gained great notoriety for his brutality that he showed following the Battle of Waxhaw, where he showed no mercy to the captured American patriots, right? Instead of, instead of caring for their wounds, instead of showing mercy to them, he shot them in cold blood. He showed them no mercy. Quarter. Now, as David and the troops are, are preparing to go out and to, to meet Absalom and the army of Israel in battle, uh, the, 
they, they plead with David to stay back. David, stay back. They're, they're not interested in us. They're interested in you, and they're going to come after you, so we want you to stay back, and if we need your help, you can send in some reinforcements from the city that you're in. So David listens, and he decides to stay back. But as the army heads out, David orders the commanders of the army, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So what he's saying is, hey, just be merciful to Absalom. I I know that that's why we're having this war, but be merciful to him. The text tells us actually in chapter 12, when a man had opportunity to kill Absalom but chose not to, that he chose not to because he understood the king to say, protect the young man Absalom. Excuse me, that's not chapter 12, that's chapter 18 and verse 12. So let's just take a step back and consider the situation. Absalom, as we know, is a murderer and a traitor. He is not acting in righteousness and he is headstrong in his sin. He is not repentant in any way. Now, prior to becoming king, David would not even raise a hand against God's anointed. In fact, he put to death the one who did raise their hand against God's anointed. Now, certainly, David here was an emotional mess. He was speaking more out of his fatherly role than he was his kingly role. But still, it just didn't make any sense. Absalom was a threat to the kingdom. And because God was not on his side, Absalom's side, he was a threat to God's people. Now, what I'm not saying, you need to hear this, is that we throw mercy out the door. I'm not saying that we throw mercy out the door. Scripture does not allow for that. We are to be merciful people, even as the New Testament calls us to love our enemies and to be characterized by mercy because God has been merciful to us. So I'm not talking about being unmerciful or being cruel or being a vindictive person. That would be sinful. But I am saying, friends, that we cannot give quarter to those things that will destroy us. We cannot show mercy to the things that come into our lives that seek to destroy us in terms of sin. We can't show mercy, in a sense, to sin. We can't coddle sin. Why? Because sin always opposes God's kingdom. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Show no quarter to the flesh, to that which opposes righteousness in your life. In Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6, we are to crucify sin. We are to put it to death. In Ephesians chapter 4, we are to lay aside the old sinful self. In fact, Jesus teaches us that we should deal deliberately with sin and temptation. Listen to what he writes, what he says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is Jesus being literal there? Does he really mean to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye? Likely not, because we still have a mind that can move towards lust anyway. But what he is telling us is that we're to deal deliberately and ruthlessly with temptation and sin in our lives. We're to put it to death at all costs. We are to show no quarter to the things that oppose God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And while we aren't called to slay people in the name of righteousness, we are called to disassociate at times with people who continue in sinful ways, recognizing that the company that we keep matters. In fact, according to Paul's letters, this includes unrepentant church members who continue in the pathway of sin. We read this in 1 Corinthians 5, in Titus chapter 3, in 2 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This matters when it comes to people who stir up division. Paul says, look, avoid them. Don't go near them. People who are in unrepentant sin, God needs to break through in their hearts. You need to treat them even at times as though they are unbelievers so that God will bring judgment to life and they may ultimately turn and repent. And friends, while we should always be ready to love and while we should always be ready to share the gospel with those who are apart from Christ, Psalm 1 warns us very clearly that we are to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, not stand in the way of sinners, and not sit in the seat of scoffers. And this means that we're to be careful about who we spend time with and what we do when we're spending time with people. Show no accord to that which opposes God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Next, when the battle rages, friends, by faith, rest on the promise that God cares for his own. When the battle rages, rest on the promise that God cares for his own. So verses six and seven just give us a very brief summary of this much anticipated battle. But you'll notice that it's very brief. Essentially, what it says is that these two armies went out and they fought in this wilderness and David's men overtook and they, they defeated Absalom's men. They defeated Israel and very likely Israel panicked and there was a rough terrain and many people even died because of their panic in that rough terrain. But the real focus, friends, here is on what happens to Absalom. So let's look at verses 9 through 18. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. And on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life 
and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You wouldn't have protected me. You wouldn't have stepped up. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So I wanna focus on that very first verse, verse nine for just a moment. You'll remember it said, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Happened to meet the servants of David. Now, that term happened is really important. I believe the author wants us to see God's providence here. I believe the author wants us to see the invisible hand of God. This was no accident that David's servants happened to run into Absalom in that moment. God, we know, was against Absalom. That David's servants saw Absalom in that moment was due to God's providence. And honestly, what happens next is likely according to God's providence as well, right? One author speculates that while the servants of David are are coming after Absalom and Absalom is kind of fleeing on his mule, that Absalom is looking back and not paying attention to what's in front of him. And his head gets caught in like a, a, a bow of this great oak tree. And he's stuck there and he's hanging there in the tree above the ground and he is caught as his mule continues to go on out from him. And what this is showing us, friends, is that God cares for his own. Even when his own don't know what's best for them. Right? David wanted Joab and the people to show mercy to Absalom. But here Joab shows justice. God brings justice to the situation through Joab. Tim Chester, commentator, author, writes, Absalom deserved death. And the fact that the mule, which was a royal mount, kept moving with Absalom stuck in the tree symbolizes that the kingdom was disappearing beneath him. Right? Absalom was a counterfeit king and his kingdom was a counterfeit kingdom he was not God's anointed this was not God's plan so Joab sees to it that Absalom is killed and then given a traitor's burial under a pile of stones and the question is was Joab wrong in this was he wrong to disobey King David Was he right to take matters into his own hand yet once again because we've seen this from him over and over? Well, this is debatable. The writer here doesn't seem to assign guilt to Joab. Even if we do grow weary of Joab's propensity to do what Joab wants to do. In this case, it seems that Joab was doing what God was allowing him to do. And while we see God caring for his own, Friends, we need to see God caring for his own through the ultimate king. 
We need to see God carrying through his own, through God's anointed, through King Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. Some will argue, well, God, God, re- God turned his back on Jesus. God allowed Jesus to be crucified. He didn't care for him. I mean, how could a father allow the son to be crucified? However, Jesus was willing to give up his life. And he entrusted himself to the father to do what a just father does. Crucifixion, you know, wasn't the end of the story. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. He died for the sin of the world, but he did not stay dead. And God shows his care. He shows his care for his anointed Jesus, but he shows his care for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have hope today, not because of how good we are, but because of God's care for his own. As the song Mercy says, I'm living proof of what the mercy of God can do. If you knew me then, you'd believe me now. God turned my whole life upside down. He took the old and he made it new. That's just what the mercy of God can do. Now I'm alive to tell the story how I've overcome. It's his goodness and mercy and the power of his blood. I want you to hear this. I'm so glad that my freedom wasn't based on what I've done, but the goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. And while the cross is the greatest evidence of God's care for his own, friends, it doesn't stop there. This isn't dramatic, okay? The testimony of scripture is that God cares for his own, that he provides for us. That he cares for our needs, that he doesn't leave us to ourselves. No matter what we face in this life, friends, we can be confident and we can rest in the fact that God cares for his own. And if we're going to rest in this, it means that we have to be continually giving our cares and our burdens over to God and reminding ourselves that he's already won. And we know how the story ends. Next, when the battle rages, by faith, carry the good news. By faith, carry the good news. Verses 19 through 33, we have the account of David hearing the news of Absalom's death. A man named Ahimeaz is eager to run to David. He's eager to carry the good news to David of how the Lord has delivered King David from the hands of the enemies. But Joab understands that David's not necessarily going to receive this as good news. So he tries to keep this one Ahimeaz from carrying the news and instead enlists a foreigner, a Cushite man, to do it. And while the Cushite man begins his journey first to David, it's Ahimeaz who continues to plead 
with Joab to say, let me carry the good news. And finally, Joab relents, and he goes, and he actually beats the Cushite there. So I want you to hear what he says in verse 28 through verse 30. Then Ahimeaz cried to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Now Ahimeaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still, right? So he carries the news of the victory. Literally, he's carrying the news of God's salvation for David and the people. But David's focus is on his son. And yes, Ahimeaz knew the fate of Absalom at that point, but he pretends not to know what was happening. Well, it's then that the Cushite shows up. Let's look at verses 31 and 32. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. So he communicates the good news. Right? This is good news for David. That's what this is. But David does not receive it as good news. Look at verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And, he wept, and as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. And there have been a lot of words written about this statement, about how Absalom, excuse me, how David responds to Absalom's death. Personally, while I think it's obvious that David is grieved over his son, I think there's more going on. I think that David is overcome with guilt. I think that David realizes that all of this really transpired some because of his own sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. Absalom is 100% responsible for his own actions, but David must feel somewhat responsibility because all of this falls in line with the consequences for his sin. And because of this, David doesn't receive the news of God's deliverance and God's salvation as good news. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we are called to carry the good news and to proclaim it wherever we go. Our job is to tell the message of Jesus' victory, of the salvation that's found in him, and to invite all who are apart from him to find their life and their forgiveness in him through faith and repentance. We have been entrusted to tell people how they can escape God's wrath on sin, how they can experience God's forgiveness of sin and have eternal life in Jesus who paid the penalty for their sin. Now, not everyone will receive this as good news. We know that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that for some, the gospel is like an aroma of life, but for others, it is a fragrance of death. 
Not everyone receives the gospel as what it is, the greatest news ever. Not everyone receives the gospel, the news of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf as life. And we can't control how people respond to the greatest news ever. But we are called to carry the news. May we, like Ahimeaz, be eager to share the news. And may we, like the Cushite, embrace the command from our Lord to carry the good news. And may God be gracious and bring salvation to those who hear. Two more quick points this morning. When the battle rages by faith, engage in difficult conversations when needed. By faith, engage in difficult conversations when needed. Let's look at the first eight verses of chapter 19. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal into who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So what that means is rather than rejoicing and rather there be celebration and excitement when they came back to the city, they weren't proud of it because the king was mourning. The king was grieving. So as if they had to hide their emotion and, and sneak into the city. The king covered his faith, face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king rose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So Joab learns of David's reaction and Joab confronts David. David's excessive sorrow has demoralized the people. That's what's going on here. Essentially, Joab says, look, everything's wrong here. It's very clear by your reaction that if we were all dead, but Absalom was alive, then you'd be happy. All these people who have risked their lives for you, who have saved the kingdom, saved your people, What's it worth? The way you're acting makes it worth nothing. One author claims that Joab is throwing some bare-fisted punches here, and they all seem to land against King David. And while Joab's words were direct, friends, King David needed to hear every one of them. For he was at risk of losing support and losing his army and the people turning on him. And while we might question Joab's approach, we need to understand that sometimes difficult conversations are unavoidable. God calls us to speak the truth in love. And friends, sometimes the truth hurts. At times we have to confront a, a friend because of the choices that they're making, because of their sin. 
At times we have to call out or rebuke someone that we know, that we love. Look, this is in the context of relationship. Because we see that if they keep making these choices, they are going in the direction that will only lead to their judgment and to their death. It is never a loving thing to ignore sin in someone's life. Now, yes, it's important that we are not self-righteous in our confrontation. And it's best if we speak in great humility, knowing that we too are sinners. And we have an established relationship, a mutual respect. But in such circumstances, friends, to stay quiet when we need to speak up is both unloving and potentially dangerous and deadly for the person that needs to be spoken to. Unfortunately, too often our tendency is to avoid these kind of conversations. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to potentially harm the relationship. We're nervous about the fallout, and I get it. That's why it's a step of faith. That's why it's a step of faith. We pray and we obey. We trust that God will work through our genuine, loving, and redemptive efforts. And everything that we've talked about this morning, friends, it's, it's living and acting by faith. Trusting in our gracious and merciful God. Which leads us to the last point. By faith, hope in the merciful God of justice. By faith, hope in the merciful God of justice. In verse 33, King David says, Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. My son. And I don't doubt that David really felt this way. Only if I would have died broken over his own sin, feeling guilty, and in a sense, David confessing that he deserved to die and wished that Absalom could have lived. But let's look beyond David and Absalom. Tim Chester writes, the whole incident cries out for a king who will bear our fate, die our death, and take our guilt away. And that's what we have in the true king. That's what we have in Jesus the only one who is qualified to die in our place because he had never sinned. And in Jesus, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Romans 3.26. God is just. He punishes our sin in Jesus. And God is merciful. He forgives sinners based on the finished work of Jesus. This morning, hope in the merciful God of justice. Cry out to Jesus for forgiveness. Either he pays for your sin or you pay for your own sin. And if you pay for your own sin, it is an eternal death in a lake of fire. And why would we choose that when we have hope because of the finished work of Christ. This morning, where are you? Where do you stand in light of relationship with God? This morning, you have opportunity to turn from sin and to trust in Christ, to put your faith in his finished work. Will you? Or will you continue in your own way, depending on your own wisdom and your own righteousness? which has no merit at all. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you for the moments that we've had together. I pray there be no distraction now or during the sermon that would keep us from hearing what you want us to hear or responding the way that you want us to respond. May we be people who stand firm and strong for Jesus in everything. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Church, if you have questions or decisions or thoughts that you need to share or have answered, we'd love to connect with you now. Would you come forward?